Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And Julie, we need we need to kick off by uh, talking about a little urban legend. Yeah. Uh, concerning one Walt Disney. And that, of course, is the idea that buried in the secret high-tech vaults underneath uh, Disney World and Epcot Center. The Magic Kingdom, The Magic I Kingdom. Uh, yeah. Uh, wait, is that the Magic Kingdom or is, is, is uh, California the Magic Kingdom? Or oh, are they both goodness, like, I don't know. pockets of the Magic Kingdom? Dang you. Uh, Already you've exposed my knowledge of, of the Disney franchise. Well, but anyway, the myth is that somewhere underneath one of these magical cities mm-hmm. that compose this magical kingdom, there are like robot-tended vaults. And there you will find <laughs> Walt Disney's frozen body, that it's, and it's being preserved until such time as we can bring him back to life so that he can save us from the... Uh, the harsh uh, realities that face us in the future. That's right. He's just waiting for technology to catch up and and reanimate him. Yeah. Plus, somebody's got to make Fant- Fantasia three. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is of course an urban legend. Yeah. This is complete. Um, hooey. Um, hooey, if you will. Uh, I mean, for for starters, just an important factor is that uh, Dr. James Bedford, a seventy three year old uh, psychology professor, was the first person frozen in this matter uh, through cryogenics. Yeah. And that was on January 12th, 1967. Walt Disney died December 15th, 1966. You know, so you know, right. we got roughly a year there uh, before it was even really possible. Um, so uh, so there's that. Right. Right. So the confluence of events helped perpetuate this myth, uh, not to mention the fact that he was highly private and actually his funeral arrangements were not publicized. And so people started to stir up all of these rumors. Yeah. And people, I, you know, people generally like the idea of a uh, of of rich people uh, being kind of crazy and crazy Richard Branson. That, yeah. Rich, or, or also, I mean, the whole um, Howard Hughes uh, ordeal, uh, you know, true. Kind of, yeah, uh, the eccentric millionaire. Yeah, and I think that that's part of it too. Like people think of Howard Hughes and they think of Walt Disney, and they kind of they kind of bring the two together in their mind into some uh, um, uh, version of a like an an, ex- an eccentric uh, billionaire from the past. So. Yeah, and then there's those this whole thing too about Walt Disney being like a dyed in the wool futurist. Yes, the real deal. And that's what we're really going to talk about in this podcast. Uh, now that we've swept the urban uh, myth out of the way, mm-hmm. because. That's the thing. Disney, um, you know, mostly is known for Disney World, Mickey Mouse, uh, maybe more becoming more um, affiliated with Pixar uh, right. today. And, you know, and some of these are great products. But the man himself was was so much more interesting than any of these one things. And for a a, a while was a really powerful force uh, in, as far as futurist thinking goes mm-hmm. and, and just in contemplating and just advocating how technology can uh, can shape the course of our future and and better everyone's life. Well, not only just uh, not just future, but public opinion, mm-hmm. um, even even our government. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, you know, I mean, this is a guy who was an absolute optimist when it when it comes to technology, mm-hmm. and he kind of felt like you could solve any problem with technology. Right. You just had to put it in place. So what you have is this guy with a lot of money, a lot of imagination, and this absolute faith in the future. Right. Now, he was born in 1901, mm-hmm. uh, to give you a little uh, you know, time for it, 1901 through 1966. And he indeed started off with the whole uh, animation thing. Uh, 
drawing. Um, I forget what the first character was, but uh, it was a, there were a couple of characters that he came out with, one of which uh, ended up uh, uh, getting taken away from him uh, due to, to uh, some rights issues. But mm-hmm. then he settled on Mickey. Um, uh, but he was not, he was not really a gifted artist per se. Uh, I've, I've heard, I've, I've read some descriptions where they said he could really barely draw Mickey, he, you know, so. Right. Uh, but, but he had all these ideas, you know, and he'd get this idea and he'd be like, all right, here's Mickey. Let's get some talented people to make this happen. Let's get some, uh, some high end, uh, production stuff, uh, lined up and we'll, we'll produce this thing. So he was, he was big. I've also seen that as one of his criticisms that he was more of an idea starter. Right. You know, there's someone that's like, all right, guys, I got this idea for a party. We're going to have X, Y, and Z. Go do it. Uh, <laughs> and then I'll show up, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and he, uh, so he, but he was a big idea man and he left, uh, the money stuff to his brother, Roy. Right. Uh, who, and there was also this kind of, uh, older brother, younger brother dynamic there because Walt was the younger brother. Mm-hmm. So he was the, 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 the wild imagination kid and Roy was the older, uh, brother who looked after Walt. So, uh, okay, so you've got the pragmatic part, you've got the kid with Moxie. Yeah, and apparently throughout, uh, I was reading about this in the book uh, Reality Land uh, by this guy, David uh, Cohen, and uh, it's uh, it's really good. Uh, but it goes into a lot about that. Like there were basically like two factions within Disney uh, uh, for, for for a long time, and it was like Roy's guys and Walt's guys. Wow. Yeah. This is like gangs. Yeah, it was like rival gangs, one with calculators and the other um, – I don't know, dream goggles. I, I was going <laughs> to dream goggles. That's nice. Standard, like that. standard issue uh, in uh, corporate Disney back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's interesting to look at it from that historical perspective and realize that uh, Disney was sort of fed um, on futurism from the get go or future mm-hmm. futuristism. I guess you could say there's sort of a difference. Um, and. You know, here's this guy born in 1901, as you say, died in 1966. He saw a tremendous amount of progress. Right. And he, again, he had the imagination, he had the moxie, he had a vehicle, Mickey, and he got the money to, to do what he wanted to do. And at the same time, you have all of these things happening in, in uh, the United States concerning the space race, right? Right. Which is really sort of fueling his own ambition, not to mention, you know, national pride being part of this equation. And you actually look at the timeline and you you can see where Disney is starting to think that he needs to take this issue on himself. Um, and certainly it was actually one of his animators who came up with some of the ideas about space exploration as a topic. But, he, you know, he was a big proponent of of um, making this sort of technology known to people. Right. And uh, and really big into the planning and design, too, yeah. um, which. Uh, which uh, part of that uh, apparently came out of when they when they established Disneyland mm-hmm. uh, out in California. Um, he began to notice that like they didn't really plan out uh, hotel arrangements, and so like it went from after Disneyland was built, it went from there being like eighty available rooms in the in the the area surrounding area yeah. to just you know countless hotels to the point where they're they're having to worry about skyscrapers uh, rising up to where uh, you don't really have like the pristine because uh, because they have the, the different areas of Disneyland are are broken up to be like periods of the past, mm-hmm. and soon there's going to be a skyscraper peering over it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and he he wasn't he wasn't happy with the city planning going uh, going around uh, outside the park. So part, so he had this idea. It's like, hey, well, you know, if we start, start fresh, start new, then we'll plan everything out. And, you know, he had this idea that if you, if you plan it, if you design it enough, then, then humans can do it. You know, we can, uh, we we can, we can start fresh and we can create a system that absolutely works. Well, and that's what I really love about, uh, you know, part of his vision is that, you know, you employ technology so that humans can have 
easier lives. Right. They suffer less. And that really is sort of the crux of um, where he was coming from. But just to talk a little bit more about the conditions during the 1950s. Because, yes. um, yeah, this is this is crucial. It's really big. You know, you've got the space race is heating up. You've got anxieties about overpopulation, technology, atomic warfare, the environment, all of these Different uh, problems are starting are starting to come up, and again, space race really important because think of the timeline: 1947, fruit flies were launched into space by the U.S., um, and then in 1957, ten years later, you have the first artificial satellite, Sputnik. Yep. Okay. Well, and we know that was launched into space by the then USSR. And and this is important too to keep in mind that I mean, it's easy to forget even reading about it and, and, and knowing. Uh, you know, about the, just how polarized, uh, our ideas were during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a time where if you were, if you were, if you were an American and, and you knew about the Cold War, cause there's also a huge chance you were just preoccupied with everything else in life and, you know, and, and, and weren't reading all the papers. But if you were, right. if you were tuned in to what the Cold War was and what was mm-hmm. going on, then you had this very, uh, a very stark, stark idea of what the Soviet Union was. I mean, they were, uh, in many people's minds, this great enemy that represented just tyranny and the loss of the individual and the loss of freedom and, and, uh, and, you know, to the kind of polarization, uh, you, you see in, uh, in some of these, uh, these fantasy works that came out of, uh, out of, uh, Disney Studios. Right. And so, you know, to your point, then all of a sudden you see that, you know, the USSR is making big strides here. In mm-hmm. the space race, especially with Sputnik, starts to freak everybody out. On right. a national level, they start to say, this is something that we need to be doing as well. We need to have a space program. Mm-hmm. So here you have Disney, who began to produce TV shows to help support the opening of Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very smart move, right? Right. A year in advance of Disneyland opening, he starts to decide, okay, well, I've got these Four different parts of Disneyland that I really need to get people on board with and, and, you know, take the time and money to come and visit us. So I'm going to promote, uh, promote Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland and Tomorrowland. And Tomorrowland is, is sort of like the, his brainchild, right? And he's able to assemble what he calls Imagineers, which I kind of love. Um, he's got a top animator, Walt Kimball, who actually pitched the whole Tomorrowland uh-huh. to him. Uh, you've got rocket scientists and other experts who get to craft space ex- exploration futures programs that promote these technologies that the U.S. hasn't fully adopted yet. Right. Which is really fascinating. Oh, uh, and I have to jump in there real quick. Uh, you're talking about the different sections of Disneyland. Yeah. There's this great quote where apparently it was like over the gates to Disneyland that said, here you yes. leave today and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. And there was a promotional brochure that said the park had nothing of the present. Like nothing of the present exists in Disneyland, which yeah. which is in a way it's awesome because it's like, you know, it's like we're so, celib- you know, forget about what you're facing right now. We're just going to focus on how awesome the past was and how super awesome the future is going to be. But it's also kind of like the most anti-Buddhist <laughs> statement yeah. I could I could possibly imagine because because, you know, the whole, you know, like meditation, as we've, we've spoken about, you know, mm-hmm. is all about like stop worrying about the past, stop worrying about the future and just live in the moment. Walt Disney was like, stop living in the moment. Yeah. Come to Disneyland. Don't be here now. Um, and actually in the opening too, uh, when it opened, Disney said, to all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. He didn't really sound like this, <laughs> but, uh, here age relives fond memories of the past, as you spoke about. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. 
with the hope that it will be will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. So you see these themes coming out: mm-hmm. children, future, this sort of manifest destiny, which is um, hidden a bit in in uh, mm-hmm. his agenda. Yeah, that comes out in space exploration. That certainly comes out in Frontierland. Uh, when he talked about David Crockett. So, uh, so in a way it was kind of like identifying that the, the, the children, the youth of, of that day and age kind of had, a, were facing this identity crisis of who they were. There were all these different forces going on. There's all this fear about the future. And he's saying, hold on, look at these past models. This is who you are. This is your heritage. Yeah. And then look at this model of the future. This is what you can accomplish with technology. 